Yeah. Months and months of preaching to just about an empty auditorium. I'm so glad to have all of you here. Welcome all of you who are uh, joining us online. Remember, if you're enjoying watching it on the screen, we have a screen set up in our gym. If you want to watch it on the screen with other people, we have uh, a little bit of room in our uh, overflow as well. So we'd love to see you uh, here in person, uh, either in this auditorium or in our overflow uh, room. We're carrying on in our storyline of Scripture series. I want to invite you to turn to the New Testament to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. It started yesterday on Saturday. It, it happened at 5.37 a.m. It's, it's when sort of the angle of the sun uh, uh, crosses the plane of the equator. It's, it's one particular moment in time where for our hemisphere, light conquers Darkness. It's called the, the vernal uh, equinox, and it is, is the, it's the beginning of spring. It's when long winter nights give way to long summer days. It, it, it's, a, it's a turning point. It, it's a moment of transition. The first day of spring isn't determined by the Toronto Blue Jays schedule or when Home Depot wants to open their garden center. The first day of spring is, 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 not, is not based on when there's only three and a half months left of school or when we want to get out and start working in the yard. No, the first day of spring is determined by this, by this cycle that God has, has put in sequence from, from very creation, as the earth rotates, as the earth ro orbits the sun, God has, has created things such that every spring there is new life. Every spring, cold gives way to warmth. Emptiness and barrenness gives way to fullness and to life. Death gives way to resurrection. There is a new start. And as we've seen throughout our study of the Scriptures, that God loves to work in patterns. He loves to work in themes. And God has woven into the very creation, into our annual cycle around the sun, this living parable of what it means to move from death to life. What it means to see things dead and still, to spring into new life. It's a turning point. It happens every year in the changing of the seasons. And, and it's really a picture or a symbol of the turning point that, that we come to when we move from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The people of Israel have been living in a long winter. To quote Narnia, always winter but never Christmas. They had been living in exile in Babylon. They were sent home by the Medo Persians. The temple was rebuilt, but there was still something broken in them. They had returned to the land, but not to the Lord. Then the Greeks conquered the Persians. The, the Romans replaced the Greeks. The people of Israel weren't free. They weren't experiencing everything they wanted to experience. There was this long 400-year period of waiting, of winter. And really that winter goes back even to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were, were initially exiled because of their sin. This long sense of anticipation and it all changes today. Today, Matthew chapter 1, 
in verse 1, we're going to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of every promise in Scripture and every longing in our hearts. He's the fulfillment of every promise in Scripture and every longing in our hearts. Now, some of you are probably thinking, well, now that we're in the New Testament, now that we're studying the book of Matthew, I mean, now finally uh, we're, we're dealing with something that I'm familiar with. And maybe, maybe I could skip this sermon because, you know, I just, I know the New Testament. My small group's been reading the Gospel of Matthew. I know all this stuff. I know all the stories. I know, I know what it's about. I know how it all fits together. But what we're going to see that now that we have laid the backdrop and, and really set the tone and built the foundation in an understanding of the storyline of the Old Testament, we're going to look at the, the Gospel of Matthew with new eyes this morning. And we're going to see things that we might not have normally normally seen. We're going to spend most of our time in Matthew and John, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these four gospel authors, all record the same events. Uh, Matthew and Luke talk about the Christmas story. Luke and, and uh, Mark and John skip over that. They all have different points of emphasis, but we're going to spend most of our time in Matthew and John today and, and sort of supplement things from the gospel of Luke and the gospel of, of Mark. But if we're going to uh, understand how these, uh, how, these, uh, how these books come together as part of the storyline, I want to review some of the themes that we've been looking at. So take a look at, uh, on your screen at, um, at this little diagram. The theme of offspring, the theme of dwelling, and the theme of sacrifice. Now, there's all kinds of themes that we've been tracing, but I can really only, for the sake of time, zero in on three today. The theme of offspring. Remember, when Adam and Eve had sinned, as God is laying out the curses that are on the earth and on the people and on the serpent, God made a promise, a promise that the seed or the offspring of the woman would come. The serpent would bruise his heel, but he was going to crush his head. And so we have this promise of an offspring. And every time a child is born in the Old Testament, there's this sense of, is this the one? Is it going to be Cain? Is Cain going to kill the serpent? No, Cain killed his brother. Is it going to be Noah? Because because of all the sin in the world, the world has been flooded and there's a new start and Noah loved God and found favor with God. Maybe Noah will be the promised offspring, but then Noah gets drunk in his tent. Well, maybe it'll be Abraham because Abraham gets this promise that from his offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Maybe it'll be Abraham, but Abraham put his wife into the arms of another man and he slept with Hagar. And so it's not Abraham. He was too busy following the ways of the serpent. Or maybe it's, maybe it's Isaac, Abraham's son, who was willing. He, he, he asked, you know, where, where's the lamb? He, he got on the altar. He was about to die. Maybe, maybe it's Isaac, but then Isaac followed in the footsteps of his father, Abraham, and gave his wife into the arms of another man. All throughout Scripture, we're trying to figure out, who is this offspring? And so we see here, you've got the snake crusher in Genesis 3. You've got the one that will bless the nations of the earth in Genesis 22. And then David was given this incredible promise that one of his offspring would sit on the throne forever. So there's this sense of anticipation. There is a coming offspring. We've also looked at the the concept of dwelling. In Genesis chapter 1, the Garden of Eden, this was the dwelling place of God. He walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, but they were exiled from Eden. And then when God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, he had them build a tabernacle so that they they may have God dwelling in their midst. 
And then later on, the temple was constructed by Solomon and finished up in 1 Kings chapter 8. But then we're told from the book of Ezekiel, that that Ezekiel chapter 8, that there were idols in the temple. And and that was really just, that was just an exterior problem. There was actually an interior problem. Exodus chapter 14, there were idols in their heart. So Exodus records that he had a vision of the cloud, the Shekinah glory, leaving the temple leaving the city of Jerusalem. And then Ezekiel, of course, had that beautiful vision of the new temple. That temple gets destroyed in 2 Kings 25. So we've been following this theme of the dwelling place of God. And then lastly, the the theme of sacrifice. In Genesis 3, 21, when Adam and Eve sinned and they realized that they were naked and they were ashamed, God covered their shame with animal skins. Those animals were sacrificed to cover their shame. And then we have the animals in Abraham's day that were split in half and there was this bloody path in between them and God moved between the animals making that covenant. And then of course we have the the doorpost covered with the blood and the lamb at Passover in Exodus 12. And then when the tabernacle is constructed, the priests are given all of these sacrifices that they're supposed to perform in the book of Leviticus. And then Isaiah 53 points to this ultimate sacrifice that will be Made. We see all of these pictures. We see all of these promises. And Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of every promise and, and the fulfillment of every desire in our hearts. Now, if we're going to understand how all of, all of what we've covered so far fits together with the New Testament, we're going to need to understand a concept called typology. A typology, the, the, the idea of a type, is introduced in the book of Hebrews. And, and think about a typewriter. Some of you are probably too young to imagine what a, what a typewriter is. But, but a, consider it like an instant printer, like a computer that has an instant printer. Every time you type something on the keyboard, a little hammer goes up and hits the paper. So it's sort of like a stamp. So all throughout Scripture, we see these pictures And they all kind of look the same. They have the same shape. Sometimes it's clearer and darker than others. Sometimes it's kind of more faded. We have this picture. These are called types, where the stamp is there. But with every type, there is an anti-type, the stamp. As we look at the picture, we see something consistent. We see it's always shaped the same way. There must be something behind it that's shaping all of it. And as we think about the Old Testament, there are all kinds of stamps, there are all kinds of types that are pointing to something that is ultimate. Jesus, who is the fulfillment of every promise in Scripture. So, as we dive into the New Testament today, we're going to recognize this first and foremost, that we recognize Jesus as the promised offspring. As we read the New Testament, we recognize Jesus as the promised offspring. Notice how the New Testament begins. Look at Matthew chapter 1 verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Notice how Matthew's priority in getting started is trying to link the genealogies to prove that Jesus is a son of David and a son of Abraham, an offspring of David and an offspring of Abraham. And then we've got some familiar names in Matthew chapter 1. In verse 2, you've got Isaac and Jacob and Judah. Verse 3, Ruth and Boaz. Verse 6, David. Verse 7, Solomon. Verse 9, Hezekiah. We, we've, 
We've gone through these names before. Different members of the, of the family of God, the children of Abraham, and then the descendants of David as the promise gets more and more narrowed, waiting for this promised offspring. Then we see other promises come true. In chapter 1, verse 23, we see the, the virgin birth, that, that Jesus, being born of a virgin, being born the Son of God, is a fulfillment of the promise that was given in Isaiah chapter 7. And that he was going to be born in Bethlehem, in the city of David. In chapter 2, verse 6, is a fulfillment of the promise made in Micah chapter 5. And so Jesus is born fully God and fully human, but he is the promised offspring. He is descended from Abraham. He is descended from David. And as soon as Jesus is born, the Magi show up. Herod freaks out. He starts killing all the babies. Does that sound familiar? A powerful king threatened by offspring of Abraham. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a pattern. That's, there's, there's something going on. We've seen this before. It's Pharaoh in the book of Exodus trying to slaughter all of the children of the, uh, all of the offspring of Abraham. I got my notes all turned around here. Now I think I'm on the right track. So we see these different patterns. We see these stamps along the way. So Herod's going to kill all the children. God appears to, to Joseph, tells him to flee, tells him to flee to Egypt. Now look with me at, at Matthew chapter 2, verse 15. Joseph is there in Egypt, and it says that he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. He's quoting Hosea chapter 11. This was to fulfill. Does that mean that Hosea chapter 11 is about Jesus? Well, we need to be careful because Hosea chapter 11 is talking about the love story between, between, between God and his people. He's talking about, out of Egypt I called my son. He's, he's looking back on how he rescued them from Egypt and now they were his people in the promised land. But again, what we see here is this is one of the stamps on the page. It's fitting a pattern. So when it says in Hosea 11 that Jesus was called out of Egypt. It's saying that Jesus is, is the ultimate offspring of Abraham. We're going to see many things in Jesus' life that parallel the history of the people of Israel. Keep reading. Look at chapter 3 of Matthew, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Well, Matthew here is quoting Isaiah 40. Well, what's Isaiah 40 about? Remember, we studied this. Isaiah 37, 38, and 39 is all about when Hezekiah was surrounded by the Assyrians and got rescued and then got sick and the Babylonians came and Isaiah predicted the Babylonian exile. And then in Isaiah 40... God says, prepare a way in the wilderness. You're going to return from exile. So again, is this about Jesus or is this about the exile? Is this about John the Baptist or is this about the Babylonian captivity? It's about both. Because the exile was a, was, a, was, was a stamp. It was a picture. It followed the same pattern. Remember, the people did return to the land, but they never returned to the Lord. And Jesus came to return exiles to, to the Lord. That's why, that's why Matthew's not being irresponsible in how he quotes and uses the Old Testament. 
No, he's just following this principle of typology. Then go to Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. In those, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Temptation in the wilderness. Testing in the wilderness. Does this sound familiar? Have we seen this pattern before? Have we seen this stamp on the page before? The people of Israel were tested in the wilderness. Jesus was there for 40 days. The people were there for 40 years. Even go further back, Adam was tempted in paradise. Jesus succeeds where Adam failed. Jesus has the ultimate offspring of Adam and of Abraham. He is, he is faithful where the people of Israel were faithless. He is fulfilling the, the role that Israel was to play. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy in conquering the devil. Deuteronomy was a book retelling the, 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 the story of the wilderness, getting them ready to head into the promised land. Then we come to Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. Jesus calls his disciples. How many disciples does he call? Come on, any little audience participation. I've been preaching to a camera for four months. How many disciples? Twelve. How many tribes of Israel? Twelve. Okay, so Jesus is calling together. Just, just, like his, just like Jacob had twelve sons. Jesus is calling now. Twelve. Now, you thought you knew the gospel of Matthew, didn't you? You thought, oh, I know all this stuff already, but do you? Do you see what's going on here? Do you see how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these promises? He is this ultimate offspring. Then Matthew chapter 5 through 7, what does he do? He goes up on a mountain and tells people how to live. The Sermon on the Mount. God on a mountain telling people how to live. Does that sound familiar? E even in that, Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, listen, I haven't come to abolish the law. I've come to what? Fulfill it. He came to fulfill it because he lived it perfectly and then he died the, the death, the sacrificial death that all of us deserve to fulfill all of the sacrificial laws as well. So Jesus then starts performing miracles. He's, he's showing that he is the snake crusher. Satan loves to kill people, but Jesus starts bringing people back to life. Satan loves disease, but Jesus starts healing. Satan wants to possess people with demons, but Jesus starts performing exorcism. He's crushing the head of the serpent. He's showing that he is the offspring of the woman who will crush the head of Satan. And how do the people respond? Look at Matthew chapter 9 and verse 27. So we've already covered Jesus is obviously the offspring of Abraham. He's, he's, his life is really just a picture of, of the pattern that the people of Israel went through. But look at how they respond to Jesus' miracles in Matthew 9, 27. And Jesus passed from there. Two blind men followed him. I'm not sure how they followed because they were blind. But they followed him, crying aloud, saying what? Have mercy on us, son of David. He's the offspring of Abraham. He's the offspring of David. Then Matthew chapter 12, verse 22 and 23. Jesus is doing more healings. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. Look at the reaction, verse 23. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? Yes, it can. Yes, it can be the son of David because that is who Jesus is. He's the fulfillment of every promise and every longing in our heart. And then it all culminates in Matthew chapter 17. 
Matthew chapter 17. Jesus is with Peter and James and John and they're walking up a mountain and then we'll pick it up in verse 2. It says, And he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Do you see what's going on here? They're on a mountain. And there's the voice of God. And there's a cloud. And Moses is there. And they're talking about tents. Do you see what's going on here? Let me just diagram it out for you here. We've got, we've got a mountain. We've got the voice of God. We've got Moses. We've got a cloud. This is Sinai 2.0. Except rather than God giving the Ten Commandments, now he is saying, I got one commandment for you. Listen to my son. Follow my son. Listen to my son. And then in, in, Luke, in Luke's recollection of the story, it says that Moses and Elijah and Jesus, the topic of their conversation, it says they spoke about his exodus. It literally used the word exodus. As if we're a little slow and we can't pick this up, Luke is like, this is about the exodus. We see in Jesus the fulfillment of every promise that he is. He's the offspring of Abraham, loved ones. He's the offspring of David. But do you see what's being said here? This is something that we didn't necessarily see coming as clearly in the Old Testament. He's not just the offspring of Abraham. He's not just the offspring of David. He is the offspring of God. He is the Son of God. He's the fulfillment of every promise in Scripture and every longing of our hearts. Loved ones, we are all longing for a person. We see it play out in our world in the celebritism in our world, in the politics of our world, in the way that we think about sports. We're all, we're all looking for the hero. The way we think about relationships, that one person to, 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 to complete me, the, the one person to validate me, the one person to lead me, the one person to save me. All throughout the history, they were looking for the offspring, the promised one who was going to make everything right. We go through all of our lives thinking, maybe this is the person, maybe this is the person, maybe this is the person. Jesus is the one. He is the promised offspring. We're all longing for a person, and it's Him. Beloved ones, we're also all longing for a place. We're longing for a place. That leads us to point two. We revere Jesus as the true temple. We revere Jesus as the true temple. Let's go back to our initial uh, diagram here. As we think about Jesus as the true temple, remember the dwelling place of God in Eden and then the tabernacle and then the temple and then the temple which was destroyed. Keep all of that in the back of our minds as we go through uh, the Gospel of John now. John chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, look down at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt, or the Greek word there is skeno, it's tabernacled, tented. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus has come to be the true tabernacle. Remember, the temple was destroyed. Ezekiel said there, there were idols in the temple, idols in the people's heart. The Shekinah glory left the temple. Seventy years later, the temple was rebuilt, but the cloud never returned. The Shekinah glory never came back. 
It was there in Exodus 40. It was there in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. It's not there in the book of Ezra. The glory never came, but the glory comes in John chapter 2 when Jesus comes to the temple and he comes to clean house. And there may not have been idols in the temple, but there certainly was idolatry, the idolatry of greed. And he starts kicking over tables and overturning chairs and scattering all, everything around. And then people start asking him questions like, what on earth are you doing? Don't you know that this is God's dwelling place? And Jesus says in verse 19 of John 2, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? Verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. They, they believed the scripture. They believed that Jesus was the true tabernacle, that he was the true temple. You want to you know God? You want to be close to God? You had to get yourself to the tent. You had to get to the tabernacle. You had to go to Jerusalem. You had to go into the temple. You want to be close to God? You got to go to the temple. And Jesus is saying, you want to get close to God? You got to go to me. I am the presence of God. I am the dwelling place of God. In Christ, all the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell. He is the true temple. Then Jesus, a couple chapters later, he's as far from the temple as really he could possibly be. He's in a foreign land known as Samaria, where they thought they were worshiping God on some mountain. And Jesus meets this woman, and he wants to talk to her about the idols in her heart as it relates to men and her relationships with men. And she's, she's pretty uncomfortable about talking about her heart, so she wants to talk about something exterior. Let's talk about worship. Is it the mountain or is it the temple? Jesus sees no disconnection between worship and the heart. And so Jesus tells, tells the lady, he says, woman, believe me. I'm, I'm in chapter 4, verse 21. Chapter 4, verse 21 of the Gospel of John. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. This isn't a new concept. Ezekiel talked about this. When Jesus said, you, you honor me with your lips, and, but your heart is far from me. Worship and the heart. He's quoting Isaiah when he's, when he's saying that. This is the way it was always meant to be. You see, in order for the people to be able to truly worship God, to truly enter into their presence, it wasn't just about what was happening on the outside. Something needed to change on the inside. Remember, all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy, I mean, we're three or four books into the Bible at this point, and, and in, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 30, God had already predicted the exile. They were still years of, 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 of even moving into the promised land and officially being there under Joshua's leadership. And God was already prophesying and predicting that they were going to get exiled out of there. But then God said in Deuteronomy 30, when you come back from exile, he says, I'm going to circumcise your heart. I'm going to change your heart. I'm going to wound your heart in such a way that, that you're going to be forever changed. This, this idea of a new heart. Jeremiah picked up on this. With, when Jeremiah 31, the new covenant and God giving a new heart. Ezekiel picked up on this. In Ezekiel 36, sprinkling the heart with water. That's why Jesus in John 7, because he is the dwelling place of God. 
He says in John 7, 37, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Remember, he's the fulfillment, not just of every promise in Scripture, but every longing, every thirst in our soul. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, you see, Jesus is the way. He is the new temple. Whoever believes in him, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Remember Ezekiel's vision of the, of the new temple in Ezekiel 47. There was a river that flowed out of that new temple. The presence of God. The presence of God is going to be in our hearts and it's by the Holy Spirit that we are the temple of God. Because Christ is the temple, if we place our faith in him, we become the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. That's why when Jesus was suffering and dying on the cross in Mark chapter 15, verse 37 and 38. Let's look at this on the screen. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. At the moment that Jesus died, it says, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Remember all of the discussion about the different rooms and the tabernacle and the temple and the different curtains and the different walls and the different barriers. When Jesus died, when the true temple was destroyed and prepared to be rebuilt three days later. The curtain tore from the top down. God made a way to make his presence accept, uh, accessible through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. So loved ones, we are longing for a person. We're longing for someone to save us. We're also longing for a place. We're longing for a place. You, you notice, I mean, we live in one of the best countries in the world and no one's happy. You ever notice that? I mean, we're, we're, we're not happy with taxes. We're not happy with how garbage is collected. We're not happy with our politicians. We're not happy with our COVID-19 restrictions. Yes, I'm going there. We're not happy. We're not happy. We're not happy with the weather. It's sunny right now, so we're happy. It'll be cloudy on Monday. We'll be unhappy. We're, we're longing for a place. We're longing for a place where, where everything is right, where there's the shalom, where there's the peace of God. We're longing for the, for the kind of place, like, like in Psalm 84, I, I long to be in your dwelling place, oh God. Jesus is that place. If we want to see things made right, we've got to come to Jesus. So we're longing for a person. We're longing for a place. And last one's loved ones, we're longing for peace. We're longing for peace. We're longing for someone to tell us that everything is going to be okay even if we're not okay. I was doing a little bit of reading this week about selfies. You know what I mean? You know what I'm talking about? Selfies, this whole thing. You want to take one right now? You see my timer's going. I read somewhere that the average millennial, if they continue on pace, will take 25,000 selfies before they die. 25,000 pictures of themselves. Selfie-related deaths are on the rise. In 2015, more people died from selfie-related accidents than they did from shark attacks. Discovery Channel doesn't have selfie week. It's, it's, it's dangerous to us physically, it's dangerous to us mentally, it's dangerous to us uh, uh, um, uh, psychologically, uh, spiritually. We're obsessed with self. 
We're obsessed with how we look and how I'm coming across. And notice how it's all on the exterior. We're obsessed with, you know, getting the right filter or the right lighting. Does everything behind me look okay? Does I look, do I look okay? I, I don't want people to actually see me how I look. I want to have a certain version of how I look. And then what's most dangerous about the selfies is they don't stay with us. It would be one thing if we just took a lot of pictures of ourselves. But you know what we do with those selfies? We post them. And then we... we we put the onus on people around us to send us little hearts or little thumbed up signs to try to give us some sense that, that we're okay and that we're doing okay and that we look okay and that someone out there loves us or likes us or appreciates us. We are just, we know things are not right. It's so clear in our culture. We know something's wrong and we're so obsessed about how it looks on the outside. But all it is is we're, just, we're, just, we're refusing to deal with the problem that's on the inside, which is our sin and that we're alienated from God. And that the only one who can give us that sense of peace is Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of every promise in Scripture, but the fulfillment of every longing in our heart, that longing to be accepted. We know we're not okay. What are we going to do about it? How can we make this right? Jesus came to make it right. You know, you picture the, the, the very beginning of sin. You picture Adam and Eve with the fruit in their hand. You just almost picture them like this. Look at us. We can be like God. We got this, we got this great insider life hack tip from the, from the serpent. And we're going to try this new thing. Look at us. We're going to eat the fruit. We're going to be like God. We're going to be in control. And so, lastly, we remember Jesus as the ultimate sacrifice. Adam and Eve in that moment when they thought about themselves rather than thinking about God, rather thinking for a moment, being so delusional that they could survive without the author of life and not experience death. We remember Jesus as the ultimate sacrifice who died on our behalf. This is how he was going to change our hearts by dying. This is how he was going to give us new life. This is how rivers of living water can flow out of our heart because blood poured out of his wounds on the cross. We remember Jesus as the ultimate sacrifice. Let's go back to our diagram here and follow this theme throughout our scripture. We have Adam and Eve. Animals died to cover their shame. They're not taking selfies of themselves naked anymore. That's not happening. They need to cover their shame. Exodus 12, the, the blood on the doorposts in the Passover, the sacrifices of the priests in the book of Leviticus, and then the sacrifice made by the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. So now we come, we're still in the Gospel of John. Let's, let's follow this theme of sacrifice in John chapter 1 verse 29. John 1, verse 29. This is John the Baptist, the one who is preparing the way, the second exile to return people to the Lord. It says, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin 
of the world. We're not, we're not 30 verses into the Gospel of John and this concept of sacrifice and substitution is introduced. This is the ultimate answer to Isaac's question to Abraham. They're heading up Mount Moriah, which by the way, I never got into this, but that very mount became the very mount where the temple is built. That, 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 uh, that concept of the son being sacrificed on Mount Moriah, that's where the temple and all the animal sacrifices happen. And what was Isaac's question to his dad? That haunting question, uh, where's, where's the lamb? And Abraham says the Lord will provide, and he did provide in that moment. But again, that was just, a, that was just an imprint. That was just a, a, a stamp of what was ultimately going to happen. The father in that story didn't have to give up his son, but the idea, the concept was traced out. But the stamp shows that God the father was going to give his son. Then we go to John chapter 10 in verse 11 where Jesus himself starts talking about his, he already said the temple was going to be destroyed. He talked about his death in John 10 verse 11. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He says, I lay my life down that they may take it up again. He contrasts himself with the thief who's Satan, who comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And Jesus came to give and to give his life and to rebuild. As a sacrifice, he said in Mark 10, verse 45, look at this on the screen, Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Ransom is a payment that you pay to set someone's free. Jesus here is using the language of Exodus. The, the, the lamb died, the blood was on the doorpost so that the angel of death passed over the people of Israel. As a substitute, Jesus was going to die as a ransom, as a payment to set people, not free from Egypt, something far worse, free from sin and death and judgment. And Jesus was the son of man. He was the son of David, the son of Abraham. People recognized it. They wanted to put a crown on his head. In John 6, they tried to capture him and force him to... They, they, wanted to force him to go on to David's throne. Jesus, as the son of David, deserved to be on a throne wearing a crown of gold. Instead, he was put on a cross wearing a crown of thorns, the symbol of the curse. Read Genesis 3. There were no thorns before there was sin. And Jesus is wearing, he's saying, I'm the, he's wearing the curse on his head. He is bearing our shame. Hanging on the cross in our place. God provided dead animal skins to cover Adam and Eve. Jesus was stripped. They're, they're gambling. They're drawing lots for his garments. He was bearing the curse. He was bearing the shame on the cross that all of us deserve for our self-obsession and sin. And the night before it all happened, and if you're not familiar with when Jesus was crucified, but it happened at Passover. It happened at the time where in all of these homes and at the temple, the, 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 these animals are, are, are being 
eaten. They are, they are being killed. They are, there's a, a sense of remembrance that is taking place of the ransom that was paid, the freedom that was given. It all happened on Passover. And Jesus is celebrating the Seder. He's hosting the Passover with his disciples. He takes the bread and he says, this is my body. And he takes the, the blood. And look at what he says when he takes the blood in Matthew 26. Let's get Matthew 26 on the screen. It says, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is my blood of the covenant for the forgiveness of sins. The blood of the covenant. Let's look at all of our covenants that we've covered so far in Scripture. Every single time there's blood. Genesis uh, chapter 9, Abraham, he gets off the ark. First thing he does is he sacrifices animals. Animals were pretty scarce at that point in time. They were all dead except the ones coming off the ark. And yet he sacrificed in worship and, and a covenant was made. Abraham, when he made his covenant with, with God, remember those animals were split in two and God walked down the bloody path. And the book of Exodus, this is where the phrase blood of the covenant comes from. Moses read to them the law. All the people said, we will obey. And then Moses threw blood on them and said, what just happened to these animals will happen to you if you disobey. And then the only one that didn't have blood was 2 Samuel 7. But I mean, that was all about the temple, which was about more sacrifice and, and more blood being shed. And now we come to the new covenant. And Jesus takes this cup. And all of the elements are there on the table. There's, there's wine. There's unleavened bread because they left Exodus in a hurry. But there's no description in any of the retellings of this in the New Testament. It never says that there was a lamb on the table. There was no lamb on the table because there was a lamb at the table. That, that Jesus takes the bread, takes the cup, says, this is my body, this is my blood. And he says, I am the Passover lamb. And John recognized this. Look at John 19, if you're still in John's gospel. John recognizes that as Jesus has given up his spirit, as he, after he says, it is finished, these professional killers, the, the Roman soldiers, recognize that Jesus has already died and so they want to double check so they spear him in the side. Normally they would have broken his legs but they didn't. They broke from protocol. And John says that happened for a reason. He says in John 19 36 for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. That's referring to Exodus 12 about the Passover lamb that the lamb's bones were not to be broken. Again, there was a, there was a pattern. We, we saw that shape. We saw that picture before, but it's pointing to Jesus, who, who is the ultimate sacrifice on our behalf. Think about these words that, that were prophesied about Jesus hundreds of years before he came as we contemplate him as the ultimate sacrifice. Isaiah 53, verse 7. Let's look at these words on the screen together. It says, Like a lamb, he was led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Why didn't Jesus open up his mouth when he was talking to Pilate? 
Why didn't he open his mouth and explain and declare his innocence in, in great detail when he was before the Sanhedrin? The, why, the reason why he didn't open his mouth is because he wasn't there on his behalf. He was there on our behalf. And when it comes to the death penalty because of sin, you and I have nothing to say in our defense. And that's why Jesus, when he was, he was like a, a lamb, silent, because there was nothing that could be said. The wages of sin is death. We all deserve to die. What God said in the book of Gen in, in Genesis and Paradise, he said, if you eat the fruit, you surely will die. If you sin, you will die. All of us deserve to die. Jesus did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb that is silent and is led to the slaughter. Verse 10 says, when his soul makes an offering for guilt... Again, this is a prophecy about the, the sacrifice that Jesus was going to make. He was going to make an offering for our guilt. And then it says, he shall see his offspring. Jesus never married. He didn't, he didn't have physical uh, children. Who are the offspring? Remember, he is the promised offspring. But when we put our faith in the promised offspring, we become his offspring. We are welcomed as offspring of Abraham spiritually speaking. We are his offspring. It says he shall prolong his days. Then in verse 12 it says he poured out his soul to death. He died in our place and he bore the sin of many. He bore my sin. He bore your sin. He bore all of our sin when he suffered and died for us on the cross as the ultimate sacrifice. He's the promised offspring. He is the true temple. He is the ultimate sacrifice. The offspring following all down the family tree. The offspring is cut off. The, the glorious temple is destroyed. The ultimate sacrifice is paid. The lamb has been slain. But three days later, that offspring raises to life. That temple is reborn. And even right now, that lamb, Revelation 5, is standing, yet though slain. And we now, as we trust in Jesus, are part of his offspring. We are temples that, that are filled with the Holy Spirit. And we offer our lives back to Jesus, Romans 12, as a living sacrifice for his glory. Because he made that sacrifice to set us free from sin and to set us free from self. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son. We thank you for your Spirit that reveals, Lord, all of these truths from your Holy Word. Jesus said in John 5 that Moses wrote of me. Jesus said in Luke 24 the, the, that the Scriptures all pointed to him, pointed to his identity, pointed to his suffering, even pointed to his resurrection. Lord, I pray that you would do a good work in us from the inside out, continuing to do the work of freeing us from our addiction to self and to sin. 
Lord, that those of us who have believed in the gospel, that we would live out of the regenerate new hearts, hearts that flow rivers of living water. Lord, I pray for those who do not yet know you, Lord. I pray that they would stop putting themselves at the center of their story, which will only make us more and more miserable but we'll recognize that, that the story is about you, that our lives are about you. So God, we pray that you would do what only you can do for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.